Welcome to Subject to Power. I'm El Kamihira. After spending many, many years researching living matriarchal societies around the world, Heide Göttner Abendroth has turned her attention back to her own backyard, the ancient history of Europe and West Asia. A lifelong researcher of culture and history, Heide knew from recent archaeology and her own research that the official and accepted version of Western history has a thick layer of patriarchal myth-making. This patriarchal overlay obscures a much larger truth, namely the long millennia of peaceful development of human societies that took place in mother-centered cultures of the Neolithic and before that, the Paleolithic. While setting out to map a more accurate interpretation of human contributions in Europe and Asia, new archaeological findings keep strengthening Haida's theories and correcting patriarchal distortions. In this episode, Haida talks to me about what all is revealed when we begin to view our human story through a new matriarchal paradigm. You and your career and your writing have written extensively on modern matriarchies, but this book is a departure in that it looks at historical records. The book is called Matriarchal Societies of the Past and the Rise of Patriarchy in West Asia and Europe. To look at matriarchal history was not my first step. Uh, even if I am committed to history of cultures, I soon noticed that uh, with history alone, you know, we have only relics of graves or artifacts and so on. We cannot find the whole picture. It's too scattered, so I couldn't find the whole picture of matriarchy by looking at history. And I would like to avoid um, to filling the gaps with my fantasy. I did not like that. So I guided myself at first to study still existing matriarch societies to learn how they function, how they do their politics, how they do their everyday life, and, and also how they practice their rituals. That This I cannot see in history. And so I make this long detour about a decade and more to study still existing matriarch societies in depth. And so I found the whole picture of what a matriarchy can be. And now with this knowledge and background, I dared to look at history. What I appreciate about your modern matriarchal studies is that it is not fragmented into you know, very distinct disciplines, it really takes a holistic view, combining the social, the spiritual, the economic, the political. You see, when, when we want to study a whole society, not only in its specialties or fragments, then we have to work interdisciplinarily. We have to look at different disciplines to find the whole picture together. I need anthropology, I need sociology, I need archaeology, and all contribute from their perspectives to bring the puzzle together. And of course, when we look at history, archaeology in these societies in early history is basic. But we have no written records, we have only grey yards or relics of settlements or artifacts. And then the question of how it's interpreted is a big question. The interpretation is very important. But uh, my background knowledge about a still living in nature art society helped me a lot to discover what was not written in the usual academic records. That would give you a completely different lens, wouldn't it? You see, this book is not a matter of some years. This book was and is a matter of my life. For as I'm so much committed in research cultures, I was looking in whole Europe and Eastern Asia and wherever I could go, I went to all these archaeological sites, to the museums and so on and so on. And very soon I discovered that the interpretations are shaky or, or even wrong. So I continued to see as many as possible archaeological sites and to compare what, what's going on there. This was one of the most important approach. And of course, if you look at these societies, you have to rely on archaeology. 
And this was a matter of, I do not know of how many years, all my life long, all my adult life long, I was looking at history of culture, which is easy for us in Europe because it, it's everywhere presented and we find it everywhere. And so bit by bit, I learned more about it. Then my first book was a study on mythology from India over Persia, Egypt, Mediterranean, and Europe. And here I found lots of patterns which were are very old and had an patriarchal overlay. Every means has a historical core. And this was another study which was important for here. I could find the patterns of the worldview. And if I do not know anything about matriarchal symbols and mythology, I also cannot interpret their artifacts in a good way. So it was also very important. One of the most striking things about the book is the different lens that you see things through. And you have a realization as you're reading about this history that there is a thick layer of patriarchal interpretation that you're constantly kind of turning over. And you talk a little bit about this lens, the matriarchal paradigm, that it's a, you know, it's a huge shift. Can you talk about that? As you say, it's a completely shift. It's a paradigmatic shift. It's a big one. For example, when I, I take an example from mythology and then from, from archaeology. When I studied mythology, you see all this omnipotent father who subdue all the other the other deities, the perfect hierarchy combined with a huge uh, level of violence. You now this is very clear. This is a patriarchal overlay. We know patriarchal patterns from our own experiences. And when I dig deeper, I could see that Many of the old female deities were masculinized, made into male gods, or the great mother goddess was transformed into a big father god, and so on. What was interesting for me, I could find out these rules of transformation. Then when you use them, then you can go back and find the older patterns again. For example, Maria Kimbotas had found these many figurines which never before had been, no attention was paid to them. And how to interpret this? She does a wonderful interpretation as goddess, or at least as female beings with divine powers. And when you compare this with mythology, then you can find very easily how it was expressed. These divine powers, which are described in mythology, are expressed in these figurines. Even if they are simple and they are tiny, it doesn't matter. At any time when archaeologists find a male person in an early historical culture, they conflate him. Yeah? He must be the big man, he must be the king. Even if, for example, female figurines are maybe more. So you see, they always the project their patriarchal mindset on these findings and distort them to, to a big extent. Yeah, and you can see it in everything about how they interpret architecture or the way buildings were arranged. This is a nice example from uh, the very old side of Jericho. Anytime when you find walls, big walls, and the tower in these early towns, it's interpreted as defensive or strategic uh, military building. And even if there's no other signs of any military around in the whole cultural area, this is also such a uh, way to project back our own uh, history where we are accustomed to Roman castles and so on and so on and fortifying the walls. There's always a back projection. It was very interesting for the later research on this show that the city was built close to a uh, desert flow. And from time to time, this flow had a lot of water and threatened the city because they started to build a protective wall against to be flooded. And this was very detailed archaeological studies which show that this wall was several times made bigger and higher according to the conditions of the environment. Well, this was a newer study, and it was so clear and showed how quick the patriarchal interpretation is always pronounced and how wrong it can be. Even to the point where 
we talk about history and prehistory, and you talk about how sort of condescending that is because there was a this cutoff point where supposed civilization began and then we disregard everything in prehistory. I don't think this term prehistory is really misguiding. For me, all history of humankind, even the beginnings in Paleolithic times where you have the first traces of culture and cultural thinking, this is all human history and cultural history of humanity. This uh, labeling prehistory and history comes from historians. They say as soon as cultures start to write, we have written culture, then it's history. All what is before is now history and it's left to the archaeologists. This devalues all the cultures who have existed before and have flourished before. And this is a longer part of human history than the written. The first written records, which, which is acknowledged as the first written records, are inscribed in stone where conquerors describe their um, conquest deeds. So, at the beginning of this misuse of script for patriarchal conquest, then historians start to regard this as documents. And they disregard that possibly many cultures before had also a kind of script, but it's not we are not able to read it. Maybe it's picture. The symbols can also be a script, like Maria Gimbutas showed in her work. But these kinds of script are not recognized as script. So you see a double bias attitude here. At first, culture begins with patriarchal conquest deeds. And secondly, former cultures had no script. So they, so they are labeled primitive. And so it's completely wrong to do this. Yeah, and disregarding, you know, the enormous cultural accomplishments that came before patriarchy. Yeah. Well, Maria Kimbuta showed that many signs on the figurines of animals and vessels must be script because they are stereotypes. But we have a wonderful research of a woman who researched this in Paleolithic times, where they showed that a whole district of caves were covered with abstract lines, dots, and patterns, like three lines, dot patterns, rectangles, triangles, chevrons, and so on. And she started to interpret these abstract signs also as a script in Paleolithic times. And I think she was really right. It's Marie Koenig with her books at the beginning of culture. So even in Paleolithic times, we have to accept that a kind of script existed. So we really... Uh, disregard so many cultural achievements of humanity if we throw this away to make the first conquerors and their stone script important. Yeah. In the book, you talk about the concept of, or the myth of eternal war. You know, I think so many of us have this notion that humanity is just warlike and that we have always just been in war with one another. Your interpretation of historical records shows something very, very different. And this is one of the most dearest theories of patriarchy, that we are warlike and war was an eternal uh, attitude of humanity. But when you believe this, then we can continue today's wars. It's quite normal to humanity, and this is a dangerous attitude, I think. There existed some theoreticians who promoted this uh, idea of eternal war and tried to describe some archaeological events um, in Paleolithic and Neolithic time as, as wars. And this is completely wrong. We have new research from a German woman professor who, who showed very exactly and closely that all these examples were wrong. It was not war. It could have been accident. It could have been a disease. And sometimes even um, communal burial was interpreted as, as war victims, but it was a sacred site and so on and so on. So you, you can see again how in archaeology some people, not all, some people manipulate their disciplines to prove patriarchal um, bias. You write also about another example, which is some of the time tools are misinterpreted as murder weapons. 
You can see this in every museum. <laughs> when some tools, the headline under these tools, when we describe this, these are weapons. Weapons, weapons. But if you look closer, you cannot see weapons. These are really tools. This is also an attitude which very often occurs in which you can observe in nearly in every museum. We have examples of very few neolithic situations where um, people were murdered. This is clear. These are not, not doubtful. But these are not, it's not a sign of war. This is a sign of a small scale conflict, be it between two villages or two, two groups or two clans. And this is a feud, which can happen. And the feud is completely different from war. The feud is spontaneous, it is small scale, it is about emotional motives, and it can be over very quickly. But war is an, is an organized murdering. You have a fixed class of warriors, which has always to, to be supported. And the goal is not to, not an emotional one, but conquest on a larger scale. So you need a completely different institution and apparatus to bring the war through. This is war, and this is very late in human history. It starts, as far as we can see from archaeological effects, it starts not earlier than in Iron Age. So we have to be very careful in this distinction. Otherwise, we, we see war everywhere, everywhere where two people just have a quarrel. No? <laughs> And you talk about the role of a bad harvest or climatic change as something that could have caused some of these mm -hmm. things. Now we have in Neolithic times, even in the time when the classical matriarchal societies have been developed, we had in a short period of times, not more than 100 years compared to thousands of years of a peaceful culture. One in hundred of years we have some few examples of such a feud. And closer research could find out that at that time, there was a climate shift, a drought, which threatened the existence of some regions and of some people. And this environmental change was not only local, it was fast spread. And so in, in a kind of despair, these people started to fight against each other, but only spontaneously and not on an organized way. And after a special time, it was over and they returned to their traditional uh, peaceful matriarchal patterns. So we have to take into account which were factors that can cause in the people some violent behavior. And this violent behavior is not violence on purpose and it's not at all war. I wanted to go a little bit deeper into how these patriarchal interpretations happen and what it is that you see differently. So it's it's common, I read in your book, that uh, archaeologists will read into findings that societies were socially unequal, but you see matriarchal patterns of equality. Can you talk about how you interpret that? You see that archaeologists try to interpret their findings, they take the interpretations from their background knowledge. And the background knowledge of archaeologists is patriarchal, more or less unconsciously. They are not anthropologists who, who see a great variety in human social forms. So their, their interpretations and their ideas what a society can be are very narrow. Most of it happens unconsciously. But some happens consciously. We have also examples of this, of course. So we have a new theory that in Neolithic times, where we, according to my research, the whole matriarchal cultures are developing and flourishing. So the new interpretation says, oh, as soon as agriculture came up, some elites could hoard the goods of the people and uh, store it in big houses and creating inequality, creating uh, violence to keep their rocket goods. And so in, in the midst of Neolithic times, private property in war began. But they have no proofs for this. There's no evidence. The only evidence are the big houses 
in some villages or in cities. And these big houses can have completely different purpose. Some other archaeologists say these are communal houses for the cult of gatherings and the religious ceremonies. And the furniture of these houses shows this. In these houses, many of religious symbols. So why should this be houses of chiefs and in the lead? No closer reason is given in archaeology how this elite came up. Suddenly it's here because we have some big houses. <laughs> this is really not a good way of argumentation. You see, this idea that as soon as agriculture came up, people could hold the goods of other people is from our own ideas. Now, as soon as uh, domination and uh, hierarchy has been established, the lower classes, especially the farm classes, were robbed of their goods and were exploited. This is a late idea which has been back-projected. When you look in modern, uh, in uh, still living matriarch societies, where most of them do also agriculture, there doesn't exist any private property. There exists clan property for the whole clan. The clans can be very big. And in the village or little town, these goods are shared at the religious festivals. They have an economy of sharing and gifting and not of hoarding. So when we have no evidence in archaeology that it was really an elite, we have to assume that it might have worked like if they do it in modern matriarchal societies. And big houses alone are not a proof. It's an idea to um, project patriarchy back as soon as possible to, again, to give patriarchy a kind of eternity. If you don't find in these times defensive walls, and if you don't find war, weapons, nothing of this, then you cannot assume that there was an elite who is hoarding the goods of the people and creating war. You have to bring a much broader evidence like a truly warlike organization and war weapons. And these are lacking in the Olympic time, completely, for a long period of time. So we can see how contradictory this interpretation is, and then we know it must be wrong. And central to that patriarchal idea, of course, is the fantasy of the nuclear family, that you have a father and mother and children in that big house. And yeah, so can you talk a little bit about that? Very late idea. It's not older than two or three hundred years in nuclear family. Before people lived also in clans, even if these clans were patriarchal clans. So the nuclear family is quite a new invention. But we are so much accustomed to this that uh, archaeologists think it has also some kind of eternity. This is also a patriarchal idea. Because involved in this idea is that the man is always the head of the household, which is not true. It's not at all true. When we find smaller houses, then immediately the idea comes up, oh, this is a house with nuclear family. But there's no proof for this. Because well, the family must not be constituted by father, mother, child. It could also be the house of a woman with her children. And from time to time, a lover from another house, for example. This is a pattern in matriarch societies. And it is really crazy when you have big houses and they claim for big houses where, for example, 20 people could live, the nuclear family. Well, it's much too big for this. So some other archaeologists now argue that if we have big houses, and some houses are really big in some uh, archaeological sites, we have to assume that these are clan houses. This is a step forward, but they don't say which kind of clan this was. Of course, for them, it's then a patriarchal clan house. But this is also wrong. It's a clan house of a matriarchal clan. For no signs of male domination or male elite, even in the household, can be seen. On the contrary, they find over and over female figurines and female-shaped vessels and female yes. Yeah, the female pictures are so overwhelming that it's not an idea that we have the patriarchy in such an early time. Right. So I find it uh, really funny that, you know, Europe and Asia is like the archaeological scene is like littered, literally littered with female representation. And yet <laughs> it's ignored. Yeah. The ideology is hard, but I really appreciate some few archaeologists who are not so much biased and look deeper 
they try to find better interpretations for they are intelligent people. They see that there are contradictions in their argumentation. So they try to find better interpretations and from them I could learn, but they don't dare to do the last step to say that the whole society was women or mother-centered, the world matriarchs avoided always. Yeah? They come close to this, but of course, they are still uh, trapped in the <laughs> ideas of their discipline and their institutions and their reputation. Yeah, yeah. If I had a dialogue with one or another of these archaeologists who were open, they not and listen to me, but they do not dare to use the term matriarchy. Because I do not want to, to lose their reputation among their peers. So it's the same with Maria Ginkuta. She did such a wonderful research and She's even still today dismissed in archaeologies and no one dares to acknowledge her, her research. Well, they, they cling together with peers. No? Yeah. And it's a hard fantasy to uh, let go of. Yeah, it's very hard. Yeah. yeah. It undermines all their patriarchal thinking. Yes, yes, what a disaster. So how do you, in an archaeological sense, how do you see that a society was egalitarian and, by extension, matriarchal. How, what are the signs? So you can see that in these societies, the houses are all equal in size. What it is in chapter here? Equal-sized houses. No big houses. No monumental palaces or temples. Nothing like that. And it is funny that archaeologists today at Chattanooga are still searching for the monumental houses. It must be there, but it isn't. It's one evidence. Another evidence are the graveyards. You can see from the way how the people are buried. If there is a big man with a lot of grave goods and a huge monumental grave building or not. And in this time, the graveyards show that people are treated equally. Even that sometimes women have richer grave goods as men. But this does not mean that they have more power. It means, for example, they were more loved or they were more important for the society as caring matriarchs or grandmothers and so on. There can have been completely different motives to give a person nice and beautiful grave goods. For example, in this early period, we have found graves of children, girls, and young girls have been found with very much grave goods. And they, of course, they could not have any, any political power. Even a grave, a monumental mound for a baby was found, a female baby. So we have to think, what does it mean? It's not a matter of power. Maybe that in a matriarch society, when a girl, even a, it's a female baby, or a young girl dies, it's a big loss for a matriarch family. Because the daughters are the future to the matrilineal clan to continue with the matrilineal line. So, these things are the reasons, and not any big women who <laughs> did not exist. But the big men existed. When it came to the first patriarchal patterns, you clearly can see these huge monumental graves with a lot of grave goods, and often with animals sacrificed to the big men and even sacrifice of his widow and children and so on. This is very clear, very clear archaeological fact. You talk quite a bit about the rebirth religion that was so central to matriarchal societies and these millennia of history. From the still existing matriarchal societies, I know that the rebirth religion means that death is not an end but that everybody comes back, is reborn in his or her own clan by the young women of the own clan. So children are regarded as reborn ancestors. The children don't come from a man, are not sired by a man, it's not their idea, but they are the souls of ancestors who want to come back into the same clan. Therefore, they are not so much occupied with biological fatherhood. For, for them, pregnancy is a spiritual matter. And I know this from still living matriarch society. And now you find in early history societies, I take again Chateau Luc and others as example, you see in the rules 
that the skeletons of children were buried under the bed of the woman of the house. And the bed of the woman of the house was a clay platform, and under her platform, the babies and small children who were, who were dying very early are buried. What does this mean? This means that the children are very close to her in the hope that these children will be reborn very soon in the same clan. And as they are the beloved ones, they should come back as soon as possible. This is an indication of reborn births. So obviously, life-giving was the role of the mother, and that is what was worshipped, was this process yeah. of life-giving. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And of course, we can know this also from mythology. Mythology studies are very important to understand these societies. And here you can see very clearly that the goddesses bring back the life again and again in a cyclical way. And the life not only of humans, the life of humans, of plants, of animals in a cycle. Life is not only linear and death is the end. No, life is cyclical. It comes from the other world, lives its life, it goes to death and comes again back, reborn by Mother Earth or the, the mothers of the clan and so on. In your book, you also go back to much earlier history, and you've mentioned a few times the big man myth that so dominate our history, and you point to man the hunter as kind of the origin idea of the big man myth. And so I think it's interesting to think about what early gathering and hunting actually looked like rather than this idea that we have in popular culture about man the hunter. Yes, this idea of man the hunter in Paleolithic times includes a lot of strange ideas. Of course, hunting was important. People were only eating meat. And he invented all. He invented not only his hunting weapons, he invented clothing against rain. He invented shelter against cold wind. And he invented speech by talking to his colleagues about a successful hunt and so on and so on. So <laughs> sometimes when you read this, it's really ridiculous. So <laughs> he did all, yeah. He did it all. <laughs> there exists wonderful new research also by female archaeologists who could show that gathering brought about much more and provided a much bigger part of the nourishment of the time than hunt. Hunt is dependent on good luck, on good chance, and is, can cannot be give the staple food in the daily diet. So gathering was much more important. And on the other hand, women had to care for the children, the next generation, for the survival of the species. So what did they do to shelter the children? They created warm clothing for themselves and the children. They created the first shelters, the first huts, the first tents and buildings. And, of course, women created the first order of time because the menstrual cycle is parallel to the moon cycle. They observed this. And so they created the first order of time. It was so important. They were economically more important than men. They were in the social life more important and also in the spiritual life. So we have to shift our idea from Paleolithic times. I think women and their camps and their huts were the central, the social center of society. Men went out going hunting, sometimes with success, sometimes without success, and came back to the center of society. At the center, there are the mothers with the children who cared for the daily nourishment of everybody, for the clothing, for the shelters, and so on. And new research also shows that language was developed not by men shouting at the hunt, and they would have run away when they were shouting. It's completely contradictory to hunting but by the intimacy between mother and child. Mothers start very early to talk to their babies, and the babies imitate the lulling and the speaking of the mothers. Also, when they grow up, the mothers guided their children by speaking, and so language development was the development of women. New paleolinguistic research shows that the basic syllabus in most language Referred to mothers, to female capacities, 
like sharing, mothering, milk, breast, feeding. These are the basic syllables in most of the languages of the world. So, for example, the syllable ma for mother is worldwide in every language. So there's no idea, no, not much evidence that men's are under at all. It's just the contrary. Yeah. Of course, the picture of man the hunter, which was a fanciful creation of patriarchal men, is important to show that men were always dominating from Paleolithic time till today, where they always had the big man and the big emperor and the big president and the big dictator and so on and so on. Purely patriarchal ideas. Yeah. With a sort of banishment of the nuclear family myth, I can imagine women being the center of society. And it wasn't like a father knew he was the father, which I find is interesting. Like this idea of the patriline or father line, you have to know how that works in order to have that concept. The idea of the nuclear family is so often backcontracted into history and it just the clear this must be wrong. For women in Paleolithic times were so important they were free. And the women in Neolithic times who created the agricultural economy were also free. They could choose their lovers as they wanted to do. You see this today in today's and still living major art societies where women and the female clan is the center and the women choose their lovers. They come and they go. The brothers are always here. The brothers are important to them, not the lover who comes and goes. And what arrangement you must do when you want to have a nuclear family. Men must have only one wife, and she must be very loyal to him, never have another lover, so he has to lock her in, that she doesn't go out, she doesn't have another lover. Only when you create such an arrangement, he can recognize his own children. And this arrangement is an arrangement of violence. Taking women away from their clans, taking away their freedom to lock them in, and being the only one who has access to her sexuality. So only under these circumstances, a man can recognize his son or his daughter. And this came up only when patriarchy arrived. When the first patterns of patriarchy were developed, then men had the power to lock women in. And this is rather late. So during Paleolithic and Neolithic times, which are the longest periods, women were free, and uh, no sign of any nuclear family could be seen. You see it in still living major societies where the children always belong to the mother and the mother's clan. So the women can change their lovers. Some do it very often, some do it very rarely. These lover or sometimes a biological father has nothing to do with the children. The children belong to the mother, have the clan name of the mother, and are well cared for them in the mother's clan. And the women, of course, are free to move around wherever they want. Now, this is a situation also in early history, before patriarchy. So there's no idea of a fatherhood. How? How? What, what women did what they want with their freedom and their sexuality. And so no idea of fatherhood was possible. No father line was in sight. And no locking in of women for only one man, no monogamy. This is something which might be very difficult for modern men or even women to imagine or to believe. But it was like that, which we can still see in living, existing nature of societies. And also no evidence that the fathers were the caretakers of the children. No, no evidence. And so it's really funny. For me, it's ridiculous when as soon as we have here in the Central Europe, these wonderful big clan houses of Neolithic time. Very soon it's told, oh, this was owned by the father and he gave to his son and so the line of one big farmhouse to the next was created. Yes, today it's the case, but not then. For there is no sign of any father line because at that time the women could not have been locked in and they were not locked in. So it's it's completely wishful thinking because it might be difficult for some males, if they are scholars, to imagine that the world was not always 
ruled by men that women uh, created a completely different society, an egalitarian, peaceful one. I wanted to circle back to agriculture and the beginning of agriculture. It's looked to me like agriculture grew out of gathering. That's right. You see, since humanity uh, created culture, religious gatherings and gatherings for councils were common. In Paleolithic times, in Neolithic times, and in a, but even in Paleolithic times, in some regions, people came together to create a big event or to create big artifacts like the drawings in the caves of France. Usually we think that at first agriculture was invented, and later when many villages and towns were settled, they created their big temples. But new archaeological research, especially on the famous site of Gürbikli Tepe in Turkey, showed it is just the contrary. Gürbikli Tepe is a big hill, and among the, the earth there are buried huge megalith megalithic structures. These are circles of stone, megalithic stones, and these stones are five meter high, formed in T-shape, like that. So they have a cup stone and a standing stone, five meter high, this is not just small. And in this hill are buried not only one of these stone circles, but about 200. Only five or four have been digged out, and the others have been found by magnetometer research. And this was at a time when we had no Neolithic villages and settlements, and at a time of gathering and hunting. It was 13,000 or even more before our era. It was a sensation for archaeologists. How to explain this? We have to think new and find new explanations. So the people of that time, of any time, even Paleolithic times, like together for sharing goods or for communication and for religious uh, festivals. They did it all the time. And at that time, the region there is very fertile. The people had enough to eat by gathering and hunting. And they decided to create a big site for their religious gatherings and started to construct these megalithic sites. When men did this construction work, and this lasted for years or decades or even longer, they must be fed. And women were the gatherers always, and men had no time to hunt any longer. They were occupied with constructing beautiful megalithic sites. And the women also were now in a new situation, for they had to increase their gathering activities. And uh, in these times, they found out how they can make the work easier by throwing seeds around their camps. It's easier for them to have the plants close by, and if they care for the plants with water and, and good earth, the plants become bigger and stronger. So step by step, by trial and error, they developed agriculture. So it was not that at first agriculture come, and then people constructed temples. It was just vice versa. Because the people wanted to have temples and for their religious beliefs, the economy had to follow. Well, this is a new idea about how um, agriculture came about. And it's quite clear that women did this, but the men had their, their other tasks to do. And these two factors, megalithic constructions and a well-developed agriculture, you can find this throughout the whole Neolithic area in, in Europe and elsewhere. So interesting. Another is, is sort of technology that I find interesting that you talk about is clothing and textiles. So I have a very special love for all textile arts. I'm Scandinavian and it's, it's in my matriline, in fact, weaving, sewing, knitting, crocheting, etc. So to me, it makes infinite sense that women came up with textiles because of their close relationship with plant life and gathering. We have even from Paleolithic times on archaeological evidence of beautiful textiles. It's not true how women and men of this early period are often depicted in museums like with shaggy furs on them and wild hair. This is completely wrong. But some graves have been found in Russia from Paleolithic times with beautifully sewn fur decorated with broidery 
I've decorated with snail shells and mussels, beautiful, in the graves. So textiles and sewing and creating beautiful clothing was very early skill of women. And why this developed especially in Europe, when the Neanderthal people developed in Europe, it was the Ice Age and it was cold, then these people never could have survived or, or occupied the whole area of Europe and West Russia and Central Asia without clothing. So the women of the Ice Age in our areas here were very diligent to develop textiles, beautiful textiles. And this was done in fur. Later in Neolithic times, when they did agriculture, they of course started to plant plants of the fibers of which they could create threads. And so spinning and weaving started, and this started typically in hot countries. For fur is too heavy and too warm in hot countries. In Chattanooga, we have war drawings to show textile patterns which women created and so they invented new art and also to use natas the wool of the sheep to to knit and to create warm uh, coats it's also a women's art they took it from animals they took it from the plants and it was always women's art and it is so important this art in the hot countries they had to protect before the sun and in ice age times, I had to protect before the cold, but it's one of the most important arts of women for the survival of all humanity. And it was from the beginning, not only a skill, it was an artwork. Yeah, yeah. So as this continued, of course, during all the human history that women were responsible for textiles, but in patriarchal times, all their skills were, were exploited. They didn't have it for themselves, but did it also for the masters who sold it for a lot of money and became rich. So, and all this work, like creating clothes, creating food and conserving food, all these inventions and activities of women are so, so little estimated because in patriarchal times, this was housework of suppressed women. So today we have no idea how important these skills have been and how important and much appreciated they have been. Well, we think, oh, this is housework and we don't want to do it any longer as women. We want to be free and have many professions. So, but in this other time, women were honored and their creations were really survival inventions for humanity. Another fascinating art form is pottery. And pottery has a very central part in how you interpret history all over. Women from the very beginning used vessels for their co collected gathered goods. It was not all. They wanted to cook, to, to roast, and to conserve their gathered goods, so they need, needed pots. And this was also a survival skill. For in, in the Ice Age, what are you doing uh, in winter when you do not have some goods from summer conserved? Yeah, it was important for survival in winter. So at first they had pots from wood and from stone. And pottery was obviously invented by chance. Then they found it out that some clay lumps or some clay figurines became hard in the fire. They discovered very soon that these pots and vessels were light. The disadvantage was that they broke easily. But they were lighter and they could be painted and they could be modeled much better than wood and stone. And this is very important for archaeological epochs are counted after the shreds of ceramic. I think sometimes these epochs should not be named after the weapons of men, but according to the pottery of women. For still today, archaeologists recognize a special culture or special epoch from the pottery of the women. And now pottery became true art. It was beautiful form, shape. Many vessels were formed in the shape of women or goddesses. They were painted. They had beautiful animals as figurines on the pots. It was a very special art which developed more and more in Neolithic times. And why do we know that pottery was in the hands of women? Or in graves of women, you find 
he chose how to make pottery, but never made plates. So it was clear that women were the pottery makers. You mentioned that areas and epochs are counted by the pottery of women, so you can actually see an evolution, like a DNA of certain pottery and pottery lines, and know a lot by that. It's very interesting that one archaeologist had a good idea. He was astonished that during thousands of years, it's now about the central European LPK culture, which stretched from Hungary to France. This is a classical Neolithic culture. Not only the construction of the longhouses was standardized, very equal, which shows huge knowledge of men how to construct houses according to special measures. But also the artistic pottery remained the same over a huge area and over two millennia. And so this researcher had the idea, it is not possible that we have a patio line, a patio locality there, because then women would have been taken out of their clans and had to, to go over to the clan of the men. And a young woman could not learn the art of pottery from her mother, but because it was transmitted during such a long time, this knowledge from mother to daughter, over such a long time in a big area, he concluded that there must exist another line in mating locality. Otherwise, this continuity of artistic pottery in the same symbols and forms would not have been possible. I think this was a strong argument for the matter line in classical Neolithic cultures. Another interesting sort of related myth-busting is we have this idea in the West of our history of trade and trade routes, because we think in capitalist terms, we think in money changing hands or goods changing hands, but you talk about trade in a very different way. Yeah. You can find in books about this early history times that people trade. But what do you understand with the term trade? We have a kind of trade where it's not an equal sharing. You are trading and buying goods and selling it to a higher price, so you become rich and richer. That's the way of our capitalist kind of trade. Of course, there exists still trade on equal terms, but anyway, if you trade, you have to think of the value of your good and you want to have the equal value. You have to think in this kind of values and counting and, and price and so on and so on. And this way of thinking is alien to these early people. Of course, the researchers were, were astonished that at special places, in some camps, goods from, from far distant came together. They found it there. For example, in Central Europe, they found in a camp mustn't from the Mediterranean, Antlers from Scandinavia, stones from East Europe, all came together there. So they thought it must have been trade, even partisan trade. But these people had no special group of traders who went far away to collect these goods and to bring it to a camp to trade. The, uh, the society was not organized in people and in traders, these groups were closely knit and there didn't exist some special profession as traders. So the idea came up that these people did not trade, but they, of course, they met and they knew their roots, they met in these camps, and they had to tell a lot of stories and to share a lot of information, and they shared gifts. They shared gifts. Well, when you come across a group of strangers that you do not know, you don't want to be attacked. You want to have friendly relationships. So the people started to share gifts to show their, their friendly intention and not to start immediately with a feud or even a war, yeah? not at all. So these were huge networks of sharing gifts and sharing communication. And in this way, this goods came to this camp. No traders who went to the Mediterranean to conduct their masses, but when these goods were collected by a Mediterranean group and given to an Alpine group, and these came further north, so they say the goods were wandering from one group to the next. 
Not one group was wandering and looking for his goods to, to bring it to the others. Not people did this, but from one group to the next, from one hand to the next, these goods from far distant came together by chance in a camp. It's a gift-sharing economy, and it's typical that only luxury goods were shared. Luxury goods were taken and passed on and received from another group, so these were goods to show the friendly relationship. And also, it strikes me that this is about relationship building, not an exercise of power. You're right. I think in these early times, creating good relationships was also a survival skill. The groups were small, the environment in Ice Age was harsh, so they had no intention and no uh, interest to meet every group with blows and that people. They want to survive, and it's easier to work in surviving friendship, and what's very important then also to share information. Sometimes uh, we are astonished in uh, how similar cultural goods, similar knowledge was spread in a huge region. This was not done by some elite who spread it, but by the sharing of the people along their communication nets. So they were not so isolated groups. They really shared knowledge about weather, about conditions, about whatsoever. And so they could go on much better to survive when each group uh, would um, make a feud on every other group. <laughs> it was not war and not feud and not conflict as some early scholars of the 19th century thought and which was repeated today. Was gift giving. <laughs> gift giving, yeah. Uh, I think it's hard for us to conceive of that kind of generosity. Yeah, but it was not, not simply generosity, it was the survival skill. Yeah, you have friends playing there and you have friends here, and even strangers who come to you, you make friends out of them so you live in peace. We have a wonderful example from anthropology about the true brilliant people of the Chopriand Islands of the Kularing, where the Chopriand men made sea travels with their boats and special luxury goods made of mussels, necklaces of mussels, and they transported in the thousands of miles to the next island. And then they created friendly relationships with this island. And the next island, next island, thousands of miles to have an island surrounding of friends, not of enemies. They did it on purpose to have peace in their vast region. And it's a very good skill to live in peace. Yes. You do talk about, and I do find this very, very interesting point of discussion, is that, you know, we talk about peace as absence of war. But, of course, peace is a whole lot more. Yes. When we think, as we said at the beginning, that war is an eternal affair, then you have sometimes pauses and a break from war, and this must be peace. Then you define peace from the lens of war, which is completely crazy. I think it's crazy. And peace often is interpreted as weakness and, and as compromising, and of course, of being oppressed, and so on and so on. It might be that this is the case in patriarchal times, which were full of war and empires and oppression and, and so on. But peace is much more. Peace is peace building is an activity. It's not only peace is simply here because we are also peaceful beings. No, we are no angels. <laughs> we also have conflicts. But peace is an activity and needs some skills. Just this idea to, to share luxury goods with neighbors is a peace skill and others. In a still living major society, you can observe this quite well that they have the idea that spontaneous conflict can always be among human beings, huh? but it must not come to blows and to violence. So they have the idea if conflict comes up, then people start to negotiate. And you know, negotiate and look what is the problem that brought up this conflict. And everybody is involved. Even if two people or two clans only have this conflict, everybody in the village tries to find out the problem and to create peace. This is the skill to negotiate in a good way that nobody feels offended and the 
conflict goes on is also a skill, a skill of good communication. And even when they can't find a solution, that they have another peace skill, they make a ritual between the two parties. And these two parties, they can say all what they want to say, or their anger, and they try to make a performance out of their feeling. When you make a performance out of your problem and your feelings, you transform it into some, something different. This also is a very intelligent peace skill. You have an example from the San people in the Kalahari that boasting and violence is made taboo. Well, you can tell me more about what you observe. Yeah, the, the San people and also the Koikoi people in South Africa belong to the oldest peoples of the world. And this has been found out by research because their language has some specialties which occur nowhere in the world any longer. So, And also their way to manage their simple but well-elaborated social life, this shows that they are very, very old. And they say it from themselves by the mythology. Yes, they had a special code of behavior, special values. Friendly behavior, open behavior, generosity is much appreciated. But showing anger or boasting oneself to be better than the other ones is despised. And uh, violence is despised deeply. So people who are violent and do not change their behavior are expelled. And I know this also from other indigenous peoples who have major patterns. For example, the Tuareg women who live in tents in their traditional culture in the Sahara, any anger which is shown openly is despised. And when they choose a lover and another is jealous, jealousy is also despised. Why? Why jealousy for them shows an attitude that this woman should belong to him, an attitude of belonging, of possession. So jealousy is also despised. And, and then the women chooses your lover, but when when this lover boasts himself that the woman has chosen him, then she immediately split from him and takes the other one. So you see that women have really, by choosing, by the female choice, women have a strong position to educate men and to care for their good behavior. And this is very important in these societies. Yes, but that, of course, requires a strong autonomy for women. That's right. The strong autonomy of women is based on that economy because economy is in their hands, not as owners, but as keepers. And they care for the economy, they care for themselves, their children, and the men. And they have great assertiveness because the women are honored and they are the keepers of the female line. So women have a very strong position in every respect, but never would say they are superior to men, never. Men are their sons, their brothers, and sometimes their much respected maternal uncles. So men are wonderfully integrated and are also respected in the special skills they have and as the special positions they have, they, which are given to them by the women. This is different to our society where we have suppression from the top and we evolved from below and mostly women are the oppressed humans in this society. I do wonder, you know, in these early periods, Paleolithic and Neolithic, the presence or non-presence of sexual violence or rape. I mean, obviously we live in a in a world that is as horrific as can be when it comes to that, but I wonder, do we know anything? Yeah. This is difficult to find out in, in early time. I know it from living major society that violence against women does not exist, not at all, right, and things like that. But if that's what happened, if a man would do this, he immediately would be expelled from the group or despised and he has no home any longer. I know it from the Hopi society, the traditional one, they say rape. And violence against women is unknown among them because women are so important. And in special respects, women are even holy because women are those who will give him or her rebirth. So men have a completely different attitude than patriarchal men. A patriarchal man is helping women, supporting them, protecting them. And this is his pride, that he's not an important man 
by himself, but he, that he has a special position and prestige because he is, for example, chosen as speaker of the clan, speaker of the clan of his mothers and sisters and brothers. And meanwhile, very integrating and generous behavior will be chosen to these positions. And these elders, these male elders, often admonish the younger men and are caring for their good behavior against women and in the community. So the whole community is involved to educate younger men and to not to let it come to bad behavior. It's not a question of moral or ethics, it's only the communal life. And when we see this in, in existing major art societies, and when we know we have in history major art societies, we can conclude that it was not quite, quite different in, in history. Yeah. And in these times, we do not have fine graves of mutilated or murdered women. It has not been found. So obviously, it did not exist violence against women. Oh, interesting. So you, there is an absence of that. And you would think if there was violence against women the way we have it now, you would see it. Yeah, because the majority of women belongs to the most suppressed beings in our society. So it's extreme and the violence continues and the rape is everywhere. These are patriarchal conditions of late patriarchy where we are in. And we will talk a lot more about that in our next interview because you write about the sort of beginnings of patriarchy. Yeah, for example, when early patriarchy starts to find graves of big men with women as victims, these women buried together with him, his widow. So you see, immediately violence against women starts. You don't find graves like that in the long Neolithic times not at all in Paleolithic times. These are clear signs when violence against them began. Yeah, yeah, you can see it clearly. This is a difficult topic for origin of patriarchy next time when we meet. Looking forward to this. Thank you so much for giving me all your time. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Subject to Power. You can find the show online at subjecttopower.com or subscribe to the show wherever you find your podcasts. I'd love to know your thoughts on these conversations, so please drop a note on the website or find us on social media. The best way to support the show is to rate and review Subject to Power on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. Subject to Power is written, hosted, and produced by me, El Kamihira. Audio engineering is done by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art by B. Johnson. And music by Beware of Darkness. <laughs>